All right, you want to go ahead and read for us? Of course. The 1937 newsreel opens with a blotchy, flickering headline, Actual Zeppelin Crash. The headline cuts away to show an impossibly large blimp with swastikas on the fins looming over New York City like a bad special effect. On another newsreel, the giant ship is shown above a cloudy, windswept landing field, floating in and out of the mists as it slowly maneuvers into a turn. On yet a third newsreel, this one with the opening title of Zeppelin Explodes, Scores Dead, the scene of the landing field takes a sudden turn. The film cuts from a shot of the mooring mass to one of an impossibly bright fire billowing over the skin of the ship. All four of the existing newsreels are filmed in black and white, without sound, and from the same spot. And they all show the same thing from this point on. The blimp is on fire at the tail. Flames race along the body of the ship and stream out the bow so quickly that it takes only seconds for the body of what is now a wreck to settle onto the field. The dirigible's lacy black skeleton is visible against the flames for a few beats before it too collapses into itself. If we didn't have these films, and the photographs, the audio recordings, and a thousand or so eyewitnesses, it would be hard to believe. But the fact is irrefutable. On the evening of May 6th, 1937, on a rainy New Jersey field, the pride of the German Zeppelin industry caught fire, crashed, and exploded in just under 90 seconds. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1937 crash of the airship Hindenburg. Thank you so much. Excellent job, as always. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Associate Gas Bag Designer for Relative Disasters Aviation. And I'm her brother, Greg, Director of Luxuriousness for Relative Disasters Aviation. Such a good job for you. I know. I'm, I'm all about the luxury experience. <laughs> the good life. Yes. Uh, our main sources for this episode are various pages of www.airships.net, which is the most fascinating website I have ever come across, and I will be spending <laughs> all my free time on there forever. Prepare yourself for some more blimp episodes. Okay. Sounds good. So I don't know if you know, Greg, <laughs> what a blimp is. <laughs> uh, Ella, if you could explain it to me, that would help me a Absolutely. lot, Absolutely, it would be my I'm, pleasure. I'm unclear. Notice how I'm I jumped unclear. on that. Mm, yeah. Basically an airship, uh, dirigible, zeppelin, blimp. Those are all kind of interchangeable terms for airships that fly using huge balloons of gas. Okay. Uh, they were developed in Germany around the turn of the 20th century after being invented in France at some crazy early time, like 40 years before. Okay. Blimps, dirigibles, airships, they use hydrogen, helium, or hot air for their lifting power. So mm -hmm. they have a gondola underneath for passengers to ride in and propeller engines for steering. But what you see when you look at a blimp, it's just basically a giant balloon. Sure. Shaped like a cigar. Yeah, right? for aerodynamics. <laughs> sort of. They're not actually very aerodynamic. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I like that and I'm going to leave it in. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking positive here. So it's weird to think about now, but before the commercial airline industry got going in the 1940s and 50s, airships like blimps were a real yeah. like travel option, especially they were a big deal. for luxury transatlantic travel. That's right. They were huge. They could cross the ocean in like half the time as a passenger liner. Yep. Uh, they had an excellent safety record, which we are going to ruin today. <laughs> <laughs> also, they were really quiet. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about riding on a blimp, you think of like floating silently above the icebergs of the North Atlantic. Mm. They're they're just very, they're very luxurious. So the big ones are appointed okay. like a cruise ship, right? So they have cabins, yeah. they have decks, uh, just all kinds of amenities, great food. Sounds like a nice trip. It usually is. Mm. So the Germans are the big innovators and inventors in the industry. And in 1936, sorry, I'm going to absolutely murder this. The Luftschiffbau, yeah. Luftschiffbau Company. Okay. Luftschiffbau Zeppelin Company. <laughs> <laughs> I did warn you. <laughs> to all our German listeners out there, please feel free to chuckle at your heart to your heart's content here. We apologize. We apologize <laughs> in advance. Uh, the Luftschiffbau Zeppelin Company launched their biggest and most luxurious model, the Hindenburg. And it was intended for transatlantic passenger travel plus, what is it they like to say in job applications um, or job descriptions? Special duties as assigned, various other duties as assigned. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was her right. job description. Gotcha. Passenger okay. travel plus a few extra things. Sure. So you probably want her stats. Yeah. Give me some stats. I'm going to give you some numbers. The Hindenburg like was nearly 800 feet long, which is... That's... That's a lot longer than I it's thought it was. It's enormous. I saw an infographic of the biggest, the Airbus, the huge one, yeah. uh, next yeah. to the Hindenburg, and it's tiny. Like, it's maybe a quarter of the size. It's, oh, my god! This gosh. is a massive, massive ship. Wow. You know, I, as much as, like, I've heard and read about the Hindenburg over time, I... That's a sense of scale I don't think I've ever come across. And it makes sense because it's supposed to carry a lot of passengers right. in its, you know, gondola area. So if you scale up, you know, a person to the size of that thing, yeah, it makes total sense. But you never think about it like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean. Good God, that's huge. <laughs> it's really big. <laughs> and I think when you look at pictures of the Hindenburg floating over cities, it always looks yeah. fake <laughs> because you're looking at it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Someone didn't do yeah. their proportions correctly. Right. Uh, so the lifting part, the lifting power comes from 140,000 cubic meters of hydrogen, which is contained in 16 cells or gas bags. Okay. And those are all contained within an envelope of treated cotton. Okay. So this is also a semi-rigid design, meaning that the hydrogen right. cells sit inside an aluminum alloy superstructure. Right. The skeleton of the ship. Right. And I feel like yeah. I have to point out that the aluminum used in the Hindenburg was recycled from a British airship that crashed on its maiden voyage in 1930, killing 48 people. So from the beginning, oh. the Hindenburg is a little bit... You know, the vibes are off. Yeah. It's a little bit haunted. Yeah, it's kind of like how you don't build a new ship from the timbers of like a haunted one. I love recycling. Which is not a good call. 
I don't think this And should... aluminum is 100% recyclable. <laughs> Maybe that's what they were thinking. But, yeah, that's weird. It's 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 haunted. It's a little bit okay, of a ghost okay. ship. All right. All right. Um, but it's also a really nice ghost ship. There are two decks, sure. including 25 passenger cabins. They have a lounge with a piano. <laughs> it's made out of aluminum. <laughs> a huge fancy dining room serving luxury food. And because it's the mm-hmm. 1930s, there is also... A smoking lounge. I was going to say, mm-hmm. they've got to allow smoking. Yep. Uh, they do actually <laughs> think... I have questions about the smoking. <laughs> I did too, so I looked into it a little bit. The smoking okay. lounge is pressurized from the rest of the kind of gondola area. That was going to be my main question. They wouldn't let just anybody light up anywhere, right? No, like, and they also have okay. someone stationed outside to make sure that nobody wanders out with a lit cigarette. Because... Forgive me if I'm wrong here, but lit cigarettes around uh, how many thousands of cubic meters of of hydrogen would be bad, right? So hydrogen is actually pretty stable as long as it doesn't mix with oxygen. Oh, That's when okay. you have problems. So in theory, gotcha. you're safe to smoke as long as... <laughs> as long as there's no leaks in the balloons exactly. or whatever. And cells. if there's yeah. even a tiny okay. leak... You're not safe to smoke. News. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Uh, so okay. this is important. Sorry, the smoking lounge is important, and I bring it up because the original <laughs> design on the Hindenburg called for helium, not hydrogen, okay. as the lifting gas. Okay. There are some big differences between hydrogen and helium, namely helium is not flammable and hydrogen is extremely flammable. Right. Right. That's really the big... <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> That's the tell. <laughs> I mean, yes. That. Yep, mm-hmm. Yep. However, between the time the Hindenburg is thought of and the time it is launched, U.S. helium gets banned for export to Germany. And and again, does that have anything to do with the aforementioned Nazis? So, that's what I was curious about too, Greg. But I'm not sure. So I think what happened is the U.S. had realized that at this time it had the largest natural deposits of helium, you know, in the world, in the known okay. mining world, Did I guess. Did not know that. Yeah. I, that's, that's neat. I don't think of helium as being mined. I think of it as like coming out of canisters. <laughs> but how does it get into the canister in the first right, place? It's supposed to be like floating in the upper atmosphere, I guess, where the dead balloons right. go to die. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And you just send <laughs> some guy up there with like a hose, right? right? Like that's how you get helium? Apparently, it's underground. Oh, who knew? I, but it floats. How can it be? All right, exactly. That's the problem I had. (laughs) End of sidebar. (laughs) End of sidebar. (laughs) So the helium in the U.S. is—they're just not exporting it anywhere, but they're really not exporting it to Germany. (laughs) Things are very tense. It's like a, it's, 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 you know, I'd like to invite all my friends and Zoidberg, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those moments. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, the designers of the Hindenburg can't convince the U.S. to make an exception to their helium ban for civilian travel. Right. So they pivot to hydrogen, which is, okay. you know, hydrogen has more lifting power. So in a way it's, it's sure. a better choice, but you know, the flammability really. It's a factor. It's a factor. Thank you. So in 1936, the Hindenburg was finally launched. Um, and this is obviously a Nazi airship. 
It is owned yes. and operated jointly by Lufthansa, Luftschiffbau Zeppelin. Those are the builders. And yep. the German Air Ministry, which is under the command of, oh gosh, who's that guy? So it's under the control of Goering. Goering. <laughs> uh, so it had swastikas on the tail, as we mentioned. Yeah. Uh, it had the Hindenburg painted on the side in that terrible Nazi script. Mm-hmm. And then, Greg, one of its first flights was actually a propaganda flight where it flew over the Rhineland, which Germany was occupying, and it spent uh-huh. four days blaring speeches and music and dropping propaganda material on the occupied villages and towns. Can you imagine anything <laughs> more unsettling than a giant? <laughs> this thing is the size of a 70-story skyscraper, and it just suddenly yeah. appears out of the clouds, blaring whatever Nazi music and dropping and fires on you. Dropping leaflets mm-hmm. on you. So after this and various other projects, oh, the other thing she did was, like, sail over the Olympics, the 1936 Olympics. Yeah. Just kind of like big circles over the track and field events. <laughs> Again. <laughs> just casually threatening everyone. It's fine. Don't forget. Okay, so after this, the Hindenburg settled into regular passenger trips, um, mostly transatlantic, on Germany to South America and Germany to North America routes. So okay. she's basically going from Frankfurt to Lakehurst, New Jersey, to Rio de Janeiro, over and over now, again. Now, why, why this one place in New Jersey? Was it just the only place that had built infrastructure for them? Yeah, exactly. It was the only place that had a hangar that was big enough. Okay. So real simple answer there. <laughs> sure. And this was actually a naval base. So Even better. So they landed with a mix of kind of Navy assistance and civilian ground crews. Huh. Weird, right? Real weird. Okay. So not only is the ship spacious and quiet, it's also really fast. It makes the trip to New York in about half the time as an ocean liner. I mean, we're going to consider Lakehurst, New Jersey as being right outside New York for the purposes of this. For the purposes of, yeah. (laughs) We'll just just say that. (laughs) So it's actually about half the time as an ocean liner. It's also really expensive. So in 1936, a one-way ticket would run you about 425 $1936. $1936. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's four times as much as a regular one way ticket on, sorry, as a first class ticket on a regular passenger liner. Jeez. But it works out to about $8,000 in today's money, which is not I, astronomical. I thought, I thought that was more. Right? Yeah, honestly, I thought that was more. But still, can you imagine paying eight grand for a one way trip to somewhere? In the middle of the Depression. In the middle of the Depression, yeah, in <laughs> 1936. What... Yeah, I'm I'm tapping out. Wild times. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Truly wild times. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's really exclusive also. The passenger capacity is only 50. But unlike a passenger liner, it's spacious, it's quiet, yeah. it's really luxurious. So here's a quote sure, from a sure, reporter, sure. Webb Miller, who took the flight on the Hindenburg okay. on her maiden trans- transatlantic <laughs> trip. Okay. Ready? I'm, I'm, I'm ready, ready for, for it. some uh, 1930s <laughs> prose. Go for it. Quote, we slipped through the air with velvety smoothness and almost no vibration. The ship did not sway or buck. The motors hummed but faintly. It was only when you thrust a hand out of the open window into the 80 miles an hour wind 
that you had any idea of our speed, end quote. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, that that sounds like it's got some appeal. Velvety. Sure. Have you ever been on a oh, flight yes. that could be described as velvety? No. No. <laughs> nope. So he goes on to describe flying through a storm, passing over New York City just above the skyscrapers, and eating okay. some amazing meals. Oh. What a great trip. Oh, I'm glad he had a good time. On May 3rd, 1937, this is her second season in service. Yep. The Hindenburg lifted off from her home airfield at Frankfurt and began her sixth trip of the season, which was supposed to end in 36 hours at Lakehurst, New Jersey. Okay. Under the command okay. of two captains and about 40 crew members, because as you can imagine, it takes a lot to keep all those gas cells and engines working together. Sure, yeah. She heads north into the North Sea. And then follows okay. the English Channel west because, for some reason, England doesn't want <laughs> giant German airships crossing their airspace at this time. Again, not Okay. <laughs> they ruin everything. <laughs> and then she heads up the North Atlantic in a long arc, and she passes over the southern tip of Greenland and then heads all the way down over the maritime provinces in Canada and into the United States down the East Coast by way of Boston and New York, okay. and finally Lakehurst. Lakehurst, yep. New Jersey. Got it. So this is the day they're supposed to make their landing in Lakehurst, but the Hindenburg is actually running late. Oh. So there have been strong... Well, we can't have that. I know. <laughs> People paid eight, eight grand for these tickets. They can't possibly be late. I actually saw a passenger schedule, and in, yeah. in bold type at the top it says, all times are subject to landing conditions. <laughs> oh, sure. But this, we're talking about 12 hours late. Yeah, is, it's a bit. Yeah. It could also be 12 hours early. They just don't know. <laughs> At least there's no, there was no such thing as connecting. Flights. Right. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't hop Can you imagine off. that nightmare? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be staying in Chicago for a week. Right. Because that's when the next airship's coming. <laughs> Sorry, friends. Wow. Okay. Okay. So today she was supposed to be in Lakehurst at 6 a.m., but now it's looking like they need to shoot for 6 p.m. instead. Okay. And by 5 o'clock, the conditions are so windy and rainy that the ground crew at Lakehurst recommends to the Hindenburg that she fly up and down the Jersey coast until the wind dies down a little, which okay. she does. So they're trying to stay outside of this weather system. It's just bad. Just j junky weather. Yeah. And the okay. thing about these airships is that they're so big they're really difficult to land in any kind of yeah. way. They have to be heading. One would imagine. <laughs> exactly. They have to be heading right into the wind. And yep. because they're so big, you know, you can. <laughs> they're a little ungainly. Exactly. It's a parking problem. So at 612, okay. there's a break in the storm and Lakehurst okay. radios the captains and recommends landing. At 622, okay. they radio again that good conditions are going to be temporary and at 7.08, they radio that the Hindenburg needs to make the, quote, earliest possible landing, end quote, because the conditions are going to get bad again in a few minutes. Okay. So now we've got a, a time crunch in addition to the yeah. <laughs> the problems of we, lowering. We've introduced this. the ticking clock exactly. element into our disaster film. So during this hour, one of the captains, Captain Max Press, has been trying to get the Hindenburg into position for landing. Okay. Has approached the airfield in this long oval because, again, she's really difficult to turn. Yeah. Yep. So he's only 600 feet off the ground 
and he's lined up with the wind, which is coming from the east. Okay. And he's heading for the mooring mast, which is where they're going to attach the nose of the ship as it settles down. Okay. Yep. However, while Captain Press is busy doing this, his first officer, Albert Sampt, is trying to deal with a larger problem or a potentially larger problem. Okay. The Hindenburg is out of trim. It's not level. Uh, so if you picture the Hindenburg as a giant cigar, it's just yeah. like tilting back. Like the tail yeah. end is heavier than the bow. And of course they can't yep. land like that without, I don't know, scraping the bottom. No, that would that would be real bad. <laughs> Breaking some things. Yeah. So at this point, okay. Mr. Samp starts releasing hydrogen from the cells at the bow so that it can settle down with less gas. Okay. This doesn't work. The Hindenburg okay. has water as a ballast, so he orders a drop of water ballast from the tail to lighten the tail. Still doesn't okay. do the trick. So he gets six of the crew and sends them forward all the way into the nose of the ship. So this is how delicately the Hindenburg is balanced. Those six guys rebalance yeah. it? Mm -hmm. Amazing. The weight of six people makes a difference in whether or not she's oh floating God. level. Okay. Wow. Okay. So now as they're finally level and they're finally lined up with the mooring mast... The yep. wind abruptly shifts from easterly to southwesterly. And these are not oh, breezes. These are no. heavy, stormy winds. Sure. Captain Press can't land unless he's heading directly into the wind. So when this happens, he needs to make a tight turn above the airfield. Uh, Unfortunately, okay. now he's too low and too close to really give the Hindenburg as much room as she needs to turn because she's a big lady. Yeah. And this puts a lot of stress on the ship. It is theorized, but not proven, that something inside the ship snapped when she made this turn. Maybe a wire okay. or a small strut. And this could have easily punctured one of the 16 interior gas bags. Yep. So if that happened, okay. it would mean as the Hindenburg settled down over the landing area, hydrogen would have been pouring out of this ruptured gas cell and mixing with the oxygen inside the skin. Yeah. But again, if this happened, no one on the ship witnessed it. No. Captain Press makes his tight turn and approaches the mooring mast. At 721, okay. when the ship is about 180 feet above the field, he orders the landing ropes dropped. So everything's in position for them to land. The crew right. on the ground has the landing ropes. And this is the point when at least two people on the ground crew look up and observe that the skin of the Hindenburg is fluttering just above gas cell five. And the Hindenburg is like a balloon. It's supposed yeah. to be taunt at all times, right? It's, it's yeah. supposed to be inflated. No, there should not be any fluttering. Exactly. Fluttering is a yeah. real bad sign. Yeah. And then five, five or six seconds later, the ground crew sees flames on the top of the ship. Okay. Right where it had been rippling. This is shortly followed by an explosion within the ship. Inside the Hindenburg, the crew hears the sound and notices flames that almost immediately turn into a conflagration. Yeah. I'm going to read you an eyewitness quote from someone who is inside the rear tail fin, so all the way at the rear of the ship. Okay. Quote, the flames became very bright and the fire rose up the side, more to the starboard side as I remember seeing it. And I saw that with the flame, aluminum parts and fabric parts were thrown up. In that same moment, the forward cell and back cell of cell four also caught fire. 
At that time, parts of girders, molten aluminum, and fabric parts started to tumble down from the top. The whole thing lasted only a fraction of a second. End quote. Jeez. Yeah. I just want to think of like an 800-foot-long fireball. It's really difficult to get your head that around. That is hard to wrap your head yeah. around. Exactly. Yeah. Like I... I, I feel like most folks have seen the pictures and mm-hmm. maybe some people have seen the newsreels and everything, but it's like, I, I cannot wrap my head around something that large going up in flames that quickly. Inside the passenger deck, the first sign of trouble is when the ship seems to fall backwards because the flames are coming oh. out of the rear of the ship and that's where the structure starts to collapse first. And then the fire is right on top of them, literally in seconds. So people who are close to the windows jump. Those in the interior cabins or the smoking lounge had no chance whatsoever to jump before the ship crashed. Right. And the worst place of all to be was in the bow of the ship where those six crewmen who were sent forward to level out the ship died instantly as the rest of the gas caught fire. Yeah. The hydrogen burns out in about a minute and a half. But the gas and the oil on board burn for hours. So when you see pictures oh of that like bright incandescent flame and then the dark smoke, the dark smoke yep. is from the gas and the oil that were on board for the engines. So 30 seconds after the first flames were visible, the ship crashes onto the landing field, killing a member of the ground crew. Rescuers are able to pull a few survivors out of the fire, but of the 97 people on board the Hindenburg during the trip, only 62 survived. I'm frankly astonished anyone survived. I was really surprised to read that, too. Did any of the crew survive? Yeah. So I don't have the breakdown, but a good portion of both the crew and the passengers survived. It really had more to do with where, where you were when it... the minute the ship caught on fire. Yeah. Um, it's not like the Titanic situation where the first class passengers had access to the lifeboats and nobody else did. Right, right, right. It was really right. the look of the draw. Now, the sight of a Zeppelin catching on fire and crashing into the ground is something that's pretty difficult to describe. But yeah. there happened to be a lot of press at the landing field that day, including camera crews, photographers, and radio reporters. We've talked about the newsreel footage a little bit. It is shocking to watch. Um, They're all silent films. So unless unless you watch something that has a narrator dubbed over it, it, it's just you can't understand what you're seeing. It's so fast and the ship just seems to melt away as soon as you watch. Yeah. A radio reporter named Herbert Morrison was recording as he watched. And you can tell he's just like shaken to his core as this all unfolds. Is that the... Oh, oh, the humanity Yeah. Guy? So I'm going to read you a little quote from his broadcast. Quote, it's just starting to rain again. The rain had slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it, just enough to keep from. It's burst into flames. Get this, Charlie. Get this, Charlie. It's fire. It's crashing. It's crashing terribly. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames. It's falling on the mooring mast and all the folks between it. This is terrible. This is one of the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. There's smoke, there's flames, and the frame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. Oh, the humanity. And all the passengers are screaming around here. I told you, I can't even talk to people. Their friends are on there. I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just laying there, a mass of smoking wreckage. 
and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and the screaming. I'm sorry, honest, I can hardly breathe. I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I can't. Listen, folks, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost my voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. End quote. That's a long quote, but I want to emphasize how quick this was. No. Yeah, like that's that's that was what was going through my head was like it took it just that long to be completely consumed. Exactly. So he's watching it as it happens. God. Yeah. It's, it's pretty horrible. Yeah. We hear the quote, oh, the humanity, like in a joking way a lot. Yeah. You can really see how he arrives at that. He's watching people die. Yeah. He's with oh, yeah. the people who were waiting for the people. For those people. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty horrible. It is. It is. So this is actually not the first dramatic Zeppelin crash the world has seen. Right. And it's not even the most deadly. Well, you mentioned the British one earlier mm-hmm. that the aluminum for the Hindenburg came Right. From. There's also the USS Akron, which was an early experiment okay. in, I think it was a naval dirigible, um, crashed okay. into the ocean. I think Jeez. killed something like 70 people. Okay. So it's not the most deadly crash, but it's documented in a way that those crashes were not. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a whole difference between hearing about it and seeing exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So a lot of people have trouble understanding how the fire got started because the airship yeah. burns so hot and fast. There's no real evidence of how it started. Sure. Uh, you want some theories? Yeah, I want yeah, theories. Yeah, some theories. Love a good theory. Some people, including Captain Max Press, who survived with severe burns, believe that anti-German wow. or anti-Nazi agents had planted a bomb inside the ship. And although this never really catches on with investigators because there's no evidence of a bomb, it does cause a lot of sensational headlines. Uh-huh. Uh, lightning is another theory. Yep. Because they were landing in a storm. Sure. But it wasn't a thunderstorm. <laughs> No, it was just a windstorm. Yeah. I mean, there was rain okay. and clouds, but there doesn't seem to have been any thunder or lightning, so it probably was not lightning. There is another theory about St. Elmo's fire. Do you know what that is? Yep. Yep. What is it? Because I have no clear understanding. <laughs> um, as I understand it, and I could be I could be wrong here, so forgive me if I look this up, but as I understand it, St. Elmo's fire is like a... Uh, is it static? In an atmospheric electric field, it's when luminous plasma is created by a corona discharge. Okay. It, you would see it on, like, ships out in the ocean. Right, and in swamps. And, and in swamps and in, um, uh, like, electrostatic discharges, basically. But, yeah, no, St. Elmo's Fire is, is a uh, – it's – it requires an atmospheric electrical field mm-hmm. and some kind of corona discharge comes off of a some tall kind of object mm-hmm. and it is it creates luminous plasma. Okay. Well, that sounds probable, yeah. doesn't it? The Hindenburg is certainly a tall object or would it be coming yeah, off the mooring mast? It would it could be coming off the mooring yeah. mast. Yeah, that would be. Okay. Well, I don't, you know. I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not, not thinking that. No. Uh, there is another theory <laughs> yeah. that the outer envelope of the ship had been treated in such a way that it made it more flammable. Yeah. This is the famous 
myth that the Mythbusters tried to bust. I think they did okay, bust it, okay. right? Well, okay. Give us the they, deets. They did bust this myth. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if you <laughs> if you have the 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 compounds that they used in the doping um, compound for paint right. on on the side of the Hindenburg, if you mix those in the proper proportions, you can make thermite <laughs> which is explosive <laughs> which is not explosive really? but it burns oh okay oh yeah no thermite burns like crazy it's not it's not an explosive burn it's a like it's when metals collide and make a, a pyrotechnic essentially oh. um however the problem is that the a, a thermite burn mm-hmm. would have been too slow right um, this was definitely not a slow fire no this was a flash and then everything is is on fire so if if the envelope had been pierced and if the doping compound was in the proper proportions to accidentally make thermite and if there was uh hydrogen leaking with uh, being combined with oxygen all of those together Mm -hmm. could have you know contributed Mm -hmm. Uh, and definitely set some stuff off, but it wouldn't, it would not by itself have caused it. Okay. And also, if actual thermite was covering the Hindenburg, it would have been too heavy to fly. Right. So. Okay. Um, but thank you, Adam and Jamie. The, that, that's <laughs> great, great work. Great work there from our favorite explosive scientists. Cool, cool. Thank you. So those are the main theories. Um, yeah. But again, those are theories, and we're unlikely to ever know or be able to prove ever really know, what exactly. exactly started the fire. There's no evidence. I mean, I, I think I think the theory that makes the most sense to me is the one where trying to execute a hard turn mm-hmm. in an airship that's not meant to do that could have snapped something that pierced one of the cells, mm-hmm. which mixed hydrogen and oxygen, and then, I don't know, a stray spark from that stressor. Yeah, it could have been anything at that point. Exactly. And it's just... I I have heard um, people through the years blame uh, people smoking, mm-hmm. but... No, because... It, but the fact that it was, you know, a really separated place, yeah, that makes perfect sense for definitely safety. definitely started on the top of the ship, and the people yeah. in the smoking lounge are way down on the bottom. Yeah. I like to think yeah. of somebody up there just having a cigarette, enjoying the view, but... <laughs> I don't think just moored to the side <laughs> of it, just like yeah, well, time to light up, hanging on the tail. I don't know. Yep. yep. Yeah, not not something that happened. And I had heard also the uh, the saboteur bomb theory, but the problem with that is that there there's just no evidence of an explosive to cause that explosion. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. So. And again, it was it was know. way in the top of the ship. It wasn't a place where yeah, you would exactly. Somebody would have had to go up, like, through the cells, through the skeleton, mm-hmm. 800 feet over and up kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's that it's unlikely. That takes a – yeah, yeah, unlikely. So the newsreels, um, a few of which get dubbed with Herb Morrison's audio because it is okay. – you know, he's basically he, talking about what is happening as it's happening. So yeah. it matches up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those newsreels are shown all over the world. Within a few news cycles, 
I guess airship yeah. travel is over. There's no public yeah. confidence in the Zeppelin way of life. In fact, the Hindenburg has a sister ship, which is completed in 1938 and goes on a brief and sad career as a Nazi propaganda slash surveillance blimp. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how you hide a blimp. That doesn't seem like a good surveillance thing. I mean... However, here's your uh, moment of hope. Okay. The idea of floating through the sky in a luxurious Zeppelin is not completely dead. You ready for okay. this? As of 2021, yeah. a British company is advertising passenger service aboard the Airlander 10, a luxury airship that can take up to 100 passengers on a cruise in a helium dirigible. It is expected to enter, enter service in 2025. Huh. Okay. I bet it's going to cost are tickets more still than... in Korea? <laughs> that I was mean... my first thought. Tickets are going to be more, <laughs> though, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but the they have images, um, like computer generated images of what it's going to look like when it's okay. flying over the ice fields of the North Atlantic. It's really beautiful. Cool. I want to go on it. Sure. And that is the story of the Hindenburg disaster. Well, that's wild. That's a pretty wild yeah. story, right? That's that's nuts. I like it. We're gonna. Um, We're gonna talk about some more blimps. I can't get enough of this. Yeah, I think I think blimps is a. It's my new thing. It's an excellent. You do the baseball stories, and I do the blimp stories from now on. Okay. 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 Is that cool? Okay, I'm here for All it. All right. Yeah. Um, how many more blimp disasters are? You'd well, be surprised, Greg. I I probably surprised would and horrified. Be sadly surprised. Yep. Well, fair enough. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And why not? Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We have the best listeners in the world. Would you agree? I, I think so, man. Like the feedback we've gotten from everybody is just amazing. It's Thank a warm you guys. Hug. Yeah, it's a warm audio hug, or Insta hug, or email <laughs> hug. Thanks, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another audio hug. Oh, no, wait. Yeah. Another strange, no. dangerous, and yeah. interesting event from history. My yeah. brother has selected our next disaster. I'm afraid to ask because you've been in a mood. What do you have for <laughs> us? <laughs> I have been in a mood. That's true. Well, you know, we're going to do another uh, air disaster here. Oh, boy. We're on a theme, aren't we? We're on a theme for a little bit here. Ella, have you ever changed a tire? Okay. So I know how to do it, but I okay, have okay. never so you, actually you, practiced. You could change a tire. You could change a tire in theory. It might okay. take a minute. Yeah, in theory. Sure. Yeah, it might take a little while. Mm -hmm. in, in theory, I, I've I've had to change a tire. I've had to do all sorts of stuff with my car. I've never had to change a tire in midair, though. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about one of the coolest pilots ever to exist, Gladys. Ingle. All right. We'll see you then. See you then. <laughs>